week's storyline results and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, January 22nd, day nine of the 2024 Australian Open, now officially in the books. That means we've reached the start of quarterfinal action in both the men's and women's singles draws. Now, before we get to previewing any of our eight fantastic matches, I owe all of you listeners a bit of an apology. We did not have a recap for day eight of this event. Thus, it's going to be a two-mini-break podcast Monday for all of you listeners. One episode will be me nerding out, offering you all of my observations as I have gone back and rewatched all of the action. But the second podcast we're going to offer you is actually the first one we're recording here today, and it's a makeup podcast, dare I say, a gift to all of you listeners. As joining me to help both recap the round of 16 and preview this year's quarterfinals at the Australian Open is a man who must best be deemed a returning champion here on our Cracked Rackets podcast, a man who we must now call a lead editor at Tennis.com. Of course, you knew him throughout 2023 as essentially a co-host on this podcast. He's one of our dearest friends who, of course, you can follow at DKTNNS on Twitter. David Kane, welcome back to the show. Your thoughts on this 2024 Australian Open to date, or perhaps more importantly, you still awake? You still alive? How are you feeling, my friend? I mean, thank God for this ring light just blasting me in the face. Otherwise, I'd be totally exhausted right now. Um, don't love the fact that I had to invite myself onto this podcast today, but I'm happy to be here all the same. I know well, what I'm wanted and I know what I'm not wanted. Well, let the record show you are always wanted on this podcast. Here's the thing. You're lead editor now. You're not just an editorial producer. You're lead editor. I know what sort of hours you guys keep over at the dot com. And so I know you're a busy man. I didn't want to infringe upon your time that said when i got the text from you indicated hey i'm ready to come back on the show it was an immediate like all right how's today i mean i had to please my fan all of my <laughs> fan were just clamoring to hear from me i didn't realize it was a tweet from november until hours later but I, indeed i got a wonderful shout out might need to take a trip to boston but um yeah was, i'm i am so tired i this there is another whole week left of this tournament even though it's monday some may say it's monday others will say it's tuesday it feels like we have lost all sense of time and space for this 2024 australian open and we've got the best the worst and everything the good the bad and the ugly happening between the men's and the women's draws so i think it's been a pretty it'll be a pretty memorable tournament i think when all is said and done but um looking forward to kind of actually talking through it with somebody because i feel like a lot of it has just been happening to me for the last 10 days and now i finally get to reclaim some agency so looking forward to that could not agree with you more and again that's why we are always happy to have you on this podcast yeah, it's been a crazy first week of this major, and obviously that's where I want to start today's show. Now, before we do, as always, a shout-out to our friends at Tennis Point for their support, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Part two, of course, if this can be a therapy session for you, DK, we are doing our job. And I want to say thank you to you because I sent you a text. We started recording around 4.30 p.m. Eastern time today. I probably sent that text around 3.55, like, hey— cool if we go on video and you're like let me get the ring light out i'm ready to rock and roll and so a thank you to you you're our first guest joining us for a mini break podcast on our youtube channel wouldn't have it any other way again lead editor for dentist.com folks i'm excited to hear your thoughts on all things australian open and again the majority of our exercise today is going to be talking about these quarterfinal matches, ranking these matches in terms of order of interest. Also, of course, breaking down what a victory looks like for each of these players, talking about how they got to this point of the event. But before we do that, 
I'm with you. I've been doing a lot of solo podcasts. Part of that has been schedule-related. Part of that, again, I don't want to impugn upon your time. But let's use this as a therapy session, DK. Let's reflect at a 30,000-foot view level to start today's show. Because, again, I know round four is technically the official start to week number two of a major event. But the quarterfinals is when the business end of this event begins. And thus, I ask you to this point, I'm going to ask you to combine men's. Well, no, no, no. We can start, honestly, with just the women's side of things. Let, let's talk about each of these fields individually because there are too many storylines to group together. Thoughts on where we are with this women's field. What would you grade this 2024 Australian Open in terms of the results we've seen to date? Well, I mean, I think globally just before we get into the women's row, I feel like part of the problem with this event is we're all kind of suffering from the hangover of the Sunday start or Saturday start, if you're Eastern Standard Time. It just feels like in many ways, the rhythm of the tournament is very different. I think we're used to these blockbuster opening round days where the stadium courts are just jam-packed with matches from start to finish. And there's obviously um, a paring down of the schedule where Stadium courts are starting later. There are fewer matches on on the main court. So it, in many ways, it feels like a very different look at the Australian Open than I think what we're used to. I think we're, we're on the East Coast. We're used to that 7 p.m. start time and things just kind of rolling from there. I think now it's been a bit of a, a slower roll and then things kind of exploded towards the end of the first week. And I think that's what we're dealing with the consequences of now. I mean, in terms of the well, women's draw. Hold on, because I think that's a fascinating point, And I'd like to discuss that further. I think one of my favorite pastimes of this Australian Open was when you would wake up for school in the morning, you're eating breakfast, you turn on the television, and there's still Australian Open action going on at 6.30, 7 a.m. Like that was- There's Ivanovich my- and Elisa Klebanova, 2009. Oh, good times. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking of as well. And it's just, again, like, I guess I I don't feel like that's been compromised. Like, I, I mean, I obviously the Medvedev Rusevori is the most extreme example where they were playing past 10 a.m. Eastern time and everyone was awake and got to see that match if you're on the East Coast, even someone who keeps weird hours like me. But like, I don't think things were compromised by the Sunday start. I had no problem with the rhythm of this major. Is it a little weird that the even days are the start of a new round? Like, yeah, that's thrown me and West off, off once or twice when trying to record an intro or double-checking that we didn't screw something up. But I liked the spread out over the course of the three days. I don't like, especially we haven't had any rain delays, so I suppose we've been on the luckier end of things. But I guess what's the impact? Like, where, where I, I don't understand the argument for why you wouldn't do this if it does help disperse the schedule more evenly, which I felt it did the first three days. Well, first of all, the idea of waking up to tennis is something that's <laughs> yeah. just unfamiliar to me at this point. I feel like one just stays Fair. up through the tennis, so that's that's an interesting callback to the, to those days. Miss them, miss them dearly. Mm-hmm. I think again, just going back to those first three days, you know, there was just you're spreading the first round that much thinner at a time when there are that many fewer, you know, established stars. There are some phenomenal players at the top of the game right now, but this is, you know, one of the first Australian Opens without your Rafa, Roger, Serena, Maria. I mean, like, they're, it's just a very different look at the order of play right now where you're saying, huh, that's interesting that they're on a stadium court. You know, you just think those are t- time slots allotted for the best matches, the best players. And I think because things are spread out that much more, you're getting things like, you know, Aussie wild cards, perhaps getting, you know, a, a stadium nod that they might not have gotten, or, you know, a, a lower seed who you would think maybe would be on, you know, a fun outer court match that, you know, ends up becoming a night match because the way that the, the schedule is slotted, you know, is, is organized. But um, 
I think it just makes it hard to get into because it felt like weird. Three days of a, of a first round is a lot. You know, just, we're already into Tuesday, Wednesday, and it feels like the tournament still hasn't quite gotten started. And so I, I, I wonder how much that rhythm, you know, that extra day off potentially for players who started on Sunday, didn't come back for their second round until Tuesday or Wednesday. Just, you know, these are questions we have to ask, especially given, you know, the way the women's draw, especially the top half shook out. Yeah, I understand that point. I guess my perspective, and this is always the perspective here on this show, kind of gave some days for not lesser known players perhaps to stand out and thrive and be the story on a schedule. And again, I love that, but I see you're at your prioritizing point. lesser known players on the mini well, break podcast. Maybe give them maybe give them a chance to generate some sort of superstardom storyline for themselves. Obviously, day two on the women's side, we had seven seeds knocked off. That was the day Vondrosova, Vakic, Potapova, Boshkova, etc. All that was well, the now day. You're just this, being mean, listing well, those no, names, but okay. That was the day. Day two was like. So here's my point. Case in point. Day two got to be the day of the 16-year-olds, where Kornieva, Andreeva, and Brenda Fruvertova in like a three-hour span was like, wait a second, what the f*** is going on here? Like, this is a moment for us to discuss. And I, I like that aspect of the, of the three-day spread out, that that storyline got a moment to thrive, that, you know, again, I guess on day number one, the story is like, no, and through all of the first three days on the men's side, you lost two seeds. And with I mean, all I think respect, any... Yeah, but I think any day three 16-year-olds win a match. I think that's – especially on the women's side. I, I mean, maybe – I mean, that would be even crazier on the men's side, but certainly, you know, three 16-year-old girls win to win matches. I think that's going to be uh, – that's always going to be headline news regardless of who else is on the schedule. Yeah, I, that that's true. Um, but, like, again, it allowed a Yastrzemska to have a moment in her opening round. All these different players. Like, everyone got their moment in the spotlight because it was a little bit better dispersed and it wasn't just a kamikaze of, like, here's – 32, uh, excuse me, 64 matches a day, two days. If it's rain, sorry, you're just screwed. Like, let's roll. I kind of, I needed the slow start. Oh, no, I needed the staggered start. That is funny you mentioned Yastrzemska because to be honest, I yeah. totally forgot that match against Von Drusva and I watched yeah. it from start to finish. Like by yeah. the time she got to Azarenka, I was like, oh, right. like who did she beat to get here? And I was like, That's oh, right. Funny. One and two against the Wimbledon champion. I guess we should have seen this coming, question mark. <laughs> yeah. No, fair enough. And I guess that sets the field then where we are on the women's side. And just a reminder, here are your eight players remaining. The top half, one of 19-year-old Linda Neskova, 23-year-old Diana Yastrzemska, 21-year-old Jung Chin Wen or 25-year-old Anna Kalinskaya. One of them is not only, uh, two of them are not only going to make their first slam semifinals, one of them is going to make their first major. And obviously there is one, well, I don't know. We'll get into that in a second. Who is the most like compelling finalist of that group? Bottom half of the draw kind of makes sense. You've got your Sabalenkas. You've got your Goff. You've got a Krejcikova who at times has been a top five player in the last 52 weeks. And obviously at times she's also been like the 144th best player in the world. But the ceilings have been there. She has three come from behind wins. We've seen her at least test Sabalenka in a way no one through her first four matches of this Australian Open have been able to. Goff's lost one set in nine victories this year. And then there's Marta Kostyuk, who you and I have spent a lot of time talking about over the years. The 21-year-old having the exact sort of kickstart to her 2024 campaign that, dare I say, might remind all of us, oh, wait, is this a player who belongs in the conversations moving forward? Those are our final eight remaining. 
There's Sviantec, Rabakina, Pagula early losses, all the mix in as well. Again, seeded chaos in that first week on the women's side. Your grade for the 2024 Australian Open women's singles draw through four rounds of play. I mean, if this was a women's draw brought to you by the mini break podcast, I mean, it's <laughs> kind of an A plus. I mean, who, what eight women do we talk about more? I mean, we probably don't okay. talk about Kalinskaya a ton, but we've certainly spent a lot of time talking about Sabalenka and Goff and Krejcikova and Kostyuk and Shinwen and Linda and Linda Noskova, maybe a little bit Diana Strebska as well. I mean, this is like those. Are, these are our girls who have we made manifested it this. We <laughs> might have manifested this one. This is the most not to get so selfish and self centered, but. It's my show. Uh, we manifested our the impact f- is the technical yeah. term. <laughs> we manifested the f- out of this draw, and it's just like you're right. These are the players we have circled for the last 24 months since we've been doing podcasts together, DK. Really, where it's like, hey, you have shown me at times one week of whoa, what was that? At times three weeks of whoa, what was that? In the case of Chin Wen now, it's probably been four months. For Noskova, a full month of, obviously for Goff, a full year. Sabalenka, a lifetime of you have my attention. And it all kind of coalesced beautifully into this quarterfinal draw we have now. And five of the, tw- uh, of the eight players remaining, DK, they're under the age of 23. None of them are named Iga Sviantek, who could belong in that category as well. Like, I'm sorry to cut you off before you gave a grade, but you kind of nailed it. Like, I am super, like, this is so fascinating to me. Do I wish there was more parity in the matchups? Maybe. But I like all the pieces and ingredients we get to work with. Yeah, I mean, from a real tennis head perspective, you take (laughs) again. And this is sort of the story of the WTA for probably the last decade. It's sort of like, whole versus some of its parts where if you look at each part individually, you're like, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. But then when you sometimes when you zoom out, you're like, wait a minute, that's not exactly what I had in mind. I mean, I feel like the immediate upshot is the fact that we have a big four right now in women's tennis and two of those big four lost early. And this is the result. You know, Shvantec and Rabakina were, I think, in many ways, I think more of a lock for their semifinal than potentially Goff and Sabalenka. I mean, the way that Iga started the year, the way Rabakina started the year, it just felt like, wow, this is going to be, you know, a gangbusters semi. That we just, it's unfortunate we didn't get that. Where I would just push back, not to cut you off right there, is the top half of the draw was clearly the more difficult of the two halves, though. And even with the match, like, it's funny that Goff and Sabalenka <laughs> got the tougher semifinal matchups, uh, quarterfinal matchups, excuse me, but that's almost a byproduct. Like, again, the top half had Vika. Ostapenko, on top of your Sviantec, Rabakinas, and Pagulas of the world, and Chin Wen. Those were six of my top eight when we did our preview show. They were all in the top half of the draw. That Chin Wen is the only one remaining, and like that she didn't have to face any of them. You're right. That is absolutely surprising, and it clouds this second week, but it's a byproduct of a thrilling first week. And like, again, to watch the level Nuskova played. Was Sviantec at her best? No. But Noskova played well enough to win that match. It wasn't just handed to her. Yastremska is a little bit different. Like, Azarenka Ostapenko was the highlight real match, and then Yastremska just kind of mucks things up with her power. But even then, that she's returning after a doping suspension, and that she was, so, you know, her first round of 16 at a major came when she was 19 years old at Wimbledon, or 18, whatever. It's five years since. Chin Wen, it's another step. Like, again, I, I'm, I keep cutting you off to repeat myself, but you're right. Anna like, Kalinskaya, you, queen of Midland. Yeah, well, you said it perfectly. It's like, does 
the sum equal the whole of the parts, or are there a lot of parts that lead to a lesser sum than you would perhaps like? I, I defer to you as I ask for your grade and final thoughts on this draw more broadly. Yeah, I mean, ugh, I mean, I think the 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 one real outlier here is Kalinskaya. I think that's sure. and that's weird because again, coming into this draw Rabakina seem. I mean, that just seemed like a very Rabakina heavy section. And once she even because they even retroactively look back and say, well, who else could have made it if not her? Maybe Plushkova. Plushkova played a little bit better in that first round against Rabakina, but there certainly weren't. It, that was the softest section of the draw for me. It certainly looked like Sloane Stevens was perhaps going to take advantage of it for a minute. And then, you know, Klinskaya comes back in three. But, you know, we, everyone's been keeping an eye on Chin Wen. Everybody knows. I mean, certainly everyone who listens to us knows what we think of the Linda Noskova technique. I mean, the, the number one Linda beats the world number one. I mean, it was really just sort of poetry in motion. And I think Diana Yastremska has been someone that who's been erratic just long enough for to kind of leave the conversation. But there was a time, even in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic, that she was considered to be certainly on the rise more than than Marta Kostyuk, more than her countrywomen. And just things have a lot of stuff has happened to Diana Yastremska since 2020. I mean, she went from being the the voice of the COVID-19 pandemic to stepping in a, a an unfortunate racial scandal when she did the photo shoot with, that was half blackface. She had the anti-doping violation that she was ultimately cleared of, but had from what we've gleaned from it is sort of an interesting, colorful um, explanation for how that uh, doping violation came about but has played phenomenal tennis this week and played really great against Azarenka. And I was reminded on the Encore interview, just what a star Yastremska is, just the way that she's able to conduct herself in front of a crowd, even when she wasn't, didn't have complete control of her words and forgot what she wanted to say, just had them in the palm of her hand. And that's, that's to me, what's most exciting is that they're from this, we might potentially get another star out of that. I think that's sometimes we have to look for is that it's sometimes there are surprises, but are there long-term implications that we can hang our hats on too? And I do think even if we've had more hype about Naskova coming in, that if Yastremska makes a deep run here, she's someone who will be very much in the conversation, just someone who will generate a lot of headlines. The time, uh, the allotted time of content you and I will be doing on Yastremska this year as I mean, exponential. Like, she's a machine. Well, here's what I'm saying is I've been hanging out recently and usually it's like once every six months, but She's been coming to Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club like once every two weeks of late. Yeah, my reaction okay, to so, this on camera. That's yeah, great. <laughs> we, we saw her starting to hang out here and we we're like, oh, Diana, like it's been a couple years. What are you doing here? And she's like, oh, I just want to test the grounds. Like you guys have picked up some new members along the way. And like I heard you kind of got Rabakina house and like Sabalenka house. And I was kind of ahead in line in them before. So I figured you might have forgotten about me. And so now she's like back. And again, full weekend privileges. Like is she a member? No, but she can come work out. Actually, full week privilege. Like come work out. Come hang out. Like make sure you're with a member so that we know you're cool this week. But like again – the fact that we haven't talked about the fact that Sabalenka's lost fewer than 10 games so far, like that you and I haven't talked about that fact is one of the great or one of the points we're making. We're, or, we're trying not to make a big deal about it. It's a yeah. secret. Or again, like <laughs> I'm telling you, Coco is really good right now. Like it's just crazy how easy 
Like she just hasn't been tested for more than 20 minutes in every match. And so all that is to say, before we get to the men's, and then we are going to talk about the matches, I promise. But I haven't got... It's a therapy... I mean, we didn't really... We didn't even talk about the bottom half. We're just, I yeah. think we're so it, no, morbidly, fascinatedly enthralled by the top half. And that the, it's bottom like the bottom half, half is like, nah. And the bottom <laughs> half is way better. Like, I yeah. love the bottom. Goff versus Kostyuk is a me matchup. Like, that's just perfect. And uh, it's just, it is because it's this physicality, these people who can do all sorts of things. And yet still, like, Goff has gotten a little bit more assertive, certainly. Not a little bit, a lot of bit more assertive, certainly. But, like... What is plan A for both of them going into this matchup? What is the thing they can do to make their opponent most uncomfortable? And how do they problem solve when both of them are going to take that thing away? Because both of them do that. Ugh, it's going to be, it's my favorite matchup, maybe on the board from a tennis questions about what the tennis looks like perspective of any of the eight quarterfinal matches we have. And again, Krejcikova Sabalenka was the best rivalry we had through the first third of last season, through the Sunshine Swing. And again, it's been a roller coaster for Barbara Krejcikova since Sabalenka, more of a steady ascent to world number one. But I'm going to go. I'm going to go the lowest possible firm A. I'm going to say 93. I was going to say 92 because you're right. We didn't get Iga. We didn't get Rabakina. The Rabakina loss was particularly shocking because I my hot take coming out of the month of January, it's my new Sebi Corda was a top 10 player in January. I bet Rabakina's win over Sabalenka in the Brisbane final will be the best tennis we see from any player this entire season because that was like, man, what the f***? Like, what are we even doing? Like, we don't need to play anymore. If that's who she is, she wins. Because what Sabalenka's been doing to people is just absurd. And Rabakina did that to her, like, throughout the course of that match. And so, anyways, that's a long way of saying we didn't get Sviantek Rabakina, but Rabakina lost 22-20 in a third set breaker. And Sviantek loses to a 19-year-old who we have both marked as a rising superstar in the game, uh, certainly from a tennis perspective. Uh, and so I'm going to go 93, lowest possible A. What say you? I mean, I think you have to knock. I think if your top two of your top four don't make it out of the first week, I do think you have to knock the grade down a little bit. So I'm going to give it a B, but I'm certainly excited. For, I mean, a it's certainly B? not yeah, even a B. B plus. We've discussed this. I grade lower. Yeah. I'm more harsh than you are. But I like I, I said, I want to go also... down to A minus. I feel like I'm on the rosy eyed scale. No, it's my draw. I'm sticking with the A. Sorry. Well, like I said, from from this in this house, it's an A plus draw. <laughs> I think just in the real world, I think we have to maybe. But I was I was, you know, I felt like there was a bit of. um <sighs> doom saying about the the state of women's tennis a, a little bit towards the beginning of the second week and i just felt like oh god you, you guys seem all very brand new i mean i've seen some over the last decade and a half some crazy draws and you're gonna act like this is like the pinnacle of chaos like you don't even know no like we're not even talking about draws that serena just won in the end that we don't really remember for being as chaotic as they really were i mean there are some wild draws in the last decade at least you know again Chinwen and Noskova if, if they make the semifinals or even if Yastremska and Chinwen make the semifinals you're like well I mean okay a, a ringing but, endorsement of the of the Zhuhai championships but, quite frankly so you baited me I'm back in we're on video I can't help it these arguments are what draw the just wanted fans. to fight you on camera no. this is why I invited myself <laughs> yeah here's this is our foreplay I'm a showman um, yeah exactly here's the thing it's not that it's more chaotic than ever before. That's not what resonates with me. It's the organized chaos. It's the fact that it feels chaotic superficially, but if you take a look underneath the surface, 
It's Chin Wen. It's Noskova. It's Kostyuk. All players we thought could do this who you're like, hey, here's a data point to start the year. They're freaking doing it. Like that to me is the exciting part is I spent a lot of time prognosticating and saying this is what the best version of this tennis player looks like. And to a lot of extent, again, in this house, Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, we've gotten A-pluses from players who we have had an eye on. And then the Marta Kostyuk of it all who just there's main care. I've said, again, the equation is it's like Bianca Andreescu 0.92. Um, and we'll see if that player can advance beyond the slam quarterfinal as we get into those eight matches. Before we do, I don't think we're going to spend as long on this because it's pretty straightforward. I really like the men's draw. I'm fascinated to hear what you think. That might be our source of disagreement, but it's the first time in Australian Open history, DK, that the top six seed, uh, in the open era, excuse me, that the top six seeds in the men's singles draw all advance to the quarterfinal round. And obviously those six guys, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, Rublev, Zverev, they're all through. They've all been tested in different ways outside of maybe Alcaraz, who's kind of cruised, as has Sinner, who's kind of cruised. But that's been so fun to watch these two guys clearly consolidate their tier one position. You had Medvedev play past 3 a.m. Melbourne time. You had Rublev, two five-set wins, Demon Hour, Sabith Vild. You've had... The Zverev of it all as well. Like Djokovic, obviously, for four hours with Prismich round one. Every match he's played throughout the course of this draw has subsequently come uh, gone less time as he's calibrated his way through. Again, top six guys all still alive. Here's the best part to me. The seventh guy, Hubi Hercots, not only your number nine seed, he's 30 and 11 since the start of Wimbledon, and he won the Shanghai Masters to end last season. Your eighth guy is a Taylor Fritz who's been knocking on the door of top 10, top eight for two years now and has made back-to-back quarterfinals at hard court majors. If that doesn't prove you're one of the top eight, top 10 guys on hard courts, I don't know what stat will. Quality of field, not quality of matchups or personalities. Quality of field, it's a 97 out of 100. Now, again, there are things you have to look beyond that as you give a total grade how we got to this point. DK, what's your assessment of the men's field to date? I don't know. In many ways, I feel like the men's tournament hasn't started yet. I feel like it will. (laughs) That's fascinating. I feel like like we're going to learn a lot from these quarterfinals one way or the other, because in many ways, it still feels like the top four's tournament to lose. And so if all four of them make the semis, then wow, we're going to get some really good semifinals. And what a testament to this current top four. And if any combination of them lose, then, wow, you know, this is a big moment for this player. It just feels like right now there hasn't, for me, a ton of, like, learning a lot of new stuff because we knew Djokovic is, is phenomenal, obviously, I don't know, 10, 10 times a, a champion here. Sinner carries his momentum from the end of last season. Medvedev carries his momentum on hard courts. Alcaraz, you know, being who Alcaraz is, you know, his first Australian Open since becoming uh, a Grand Slam champion, all of whom playing really good tennis. And I don't really know if, necessarily anything from Zverev, Hercats, Rublev, or Fritz has really made me think that they're really in position to challenge that top four right now. But if they do, then that's a storyline. And even if they don't, then we can really start to dig into the top four and who's really going to win this thing. That's a fascinating point. I didn't give a grade, so my grade is incomplete. (laughs) No, that's a fascinating point and so well said. So well said. Because this was a rare major, DK, where I predicted eight of the uh, seven of the eight quarterfinalists correctly. And the only one I got wrong, can you guess which one? 
Was it Holger? <laughs> it was not Holger. It was Andre oh, Rublev. Rude. I thought I thought Rublev was going to lose to Demon Hour in a five set match, and I was a set away, or maybe honestly it would have been four sets, but I was a set away from that happening, and that was a testament to Demon Hour. It's been lights out for six months consecutively. That was a massive victory, massive victory in Andre Rublev's career to get through that hump, to get a shot at you know again. This was the point I made on today's Great Shot podcast, uh, talking about all these day 10 matches specifically. We're going to go back through them and talk more broadly. But coming out of this match, there's no, like, if if Rublev win, loses this, it's not, oh, he's 0-10 in quarterfinals, and here we go again, another Rublev loss. It's no, Yannick Sinner's a tier one guy. He wins this match. He advances to the Big Apple. If Rublev wins this match, it's only upside. Like I think the only there's only positive spin that comes out of Andre Rublev for this because now it's not only did you beat Demon Hour just to get to this round, something you have struggled to do in majors, but you beat Yannick Sinner as well to get to your first semifinal, like a signature victory for a guy who I think is two and seven in top ten matches on hard courts over the last fifty two weeks. Like, anyways, looking at this field more broadly, that I got seven of the eight correctly. I think that kind of speaks to your point perfectly, where it's like, we kind of knew these were the best players. Like, that's, I'm not patting myself on the bat. I'm saying it was that obvious even to me, that, like, first slam of the year. I'm like, yeah, but you're better than you, and you're better than you. And, like, even, you know, Tommy Paul losing to Kasmanovich, was that a weird result? Kind of, but Tommy had match points in the fourth set. Like, he very well could have won that match. I'm trying to think of other upsets, like Shelton losing to Manorino, like, big freaking whoop. We didn't really have many, like, jaw uh, Borges over Dimitrov. That was a jaw-dropping upset. Arthur Cazot yes. yeah, getting, getting to the fourth round. That was jaw-dropping. That's it. Like, everything else on the men's side, pretty staying to script. And so I'm going to completely agree with you. I think incompletes the answer. I think it was a confirming week. I think there's a world where they are certainly on path for an A. They've checked off all of the boxes to get there. You can't give it a grade until we see how it plays out. Unless someone steps up, does a Sinner, Alcaraz, someone else beat a Novak? Does Novak assert himself in a way that you're just like, oh, for a guy to do this at 36, jaw dropping, we got to give it another A. Like, it's hard to give it a grade, given it's been pretty descript so far. I mean, we didn't we didn't 100% know what Sinner or Medvedev were going to look like coming into the tournament because they hadn't played yet, but none of... You know, other than maybe the Dimitrov result, but I mean, it's it's a lot to say that Dimitrov is going to, you know, really had a shot at winning this title. And like even the Tommy Paul results, like I don't think any of those results changed what we currently have. It's not like, oh, if this had gone a different way, we would have seen a different quarterfinalist, a different semifinalist. So I I think, you know, again, if we get the the top four in the semis, then we can, I think there's going to be a lot of. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of Internet about it, to be quite honest. No, that's (laughs) really a lot of content. Oh, Another Sinner Djokovic match to start the year, like after they played three in times. his house. Yeah, like come on <laughs> now. And again, I, like you said it perfectly. It's incomplete because we don't know how it plays out from here. But again, like Hercots is thirty eleven and eleven. What if this is him saying, you know what? I'm a top ten guy. Like I looked at the numbers, DK, so that you wouldn't have to because I want to relieve you of that burden. What's his hold percentage since the start of Wimbledon? Just give me a number guess. Knowing that the average men's player holds 82.6% of the time. The average is 82? Yeah. A little over <sighs> 82. 93. 
that is a phenomenal guest. And David Kane, if this is the price is right, you would be spinning the wheel or at least going to our first exercise. 93.4%. That boom. Yeah. Boom. That's it. For a guy who doesn't spend a lot of time at the stats, like men's tennis expert. <laughs> I've said that for years, for years. Here's what I'm saying. That's Whoa. better than prime Isner. That's better than prime curious. That's better than prime Federer. And Obviously, he's not as dynamic as Roger. That's not the comparison I'm trying to make. Here's what I'm saying. That guy— How dare you? <laughs> if you're holding over 90% of the time, you're just going to be top 12, especially when you're not a horrible returner the way an Isner, Opelka, whatever, were. Because that's not who Hoopy Hercuts is. The forehand has gotten a lot better. And so, anyways, like, I'm fine with that storyline. And look, Taylor Fritz isn't going to beat Novak Djokovic, but if he somehow does— like, oh my God, what a storyline that would be for a guy who has just been craving a win like that and has done everything else but earn a sick. Like, his win over Tsitsipas, what I said about Rublev applies to Fritz. That was the biggest win of his career. That's probably the best I've ever seen him play. And look, he should be peaking. He's 26 years old. Like, this is the time to make another push and say, no, this is my ceiling. I want to be one of the best in the world. He is. Winless in his career against Djokovic, and I think it's either seven or eight times they've played. He's only won sets against him in one of those matches. Incomplete, but on path for an A. That's where I would leave my thoughts on the men's field. You got any final thoughts? You want to rank these quarterfinals? No, but I think that the Fritz and Rublev parallel is fascinating because I do feel like they both did what they absolutely had to do to stay in the conversation, and now here's their opportunity to potentially put themselves into the conversation. Like and they. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, that and Demon Hour and Tsitsipas belong in that ilk, uh, that that you know tier of the cloth as well, right? Where it's kind of like cut of cloth, where it's like they didn't get the wins, and that's got to yeah, be crushing exactly. for both of them. Yeah. And so you're absolutely right. Like that. Those were why, ladder matches. Yeah. And so <laughs> I mean, again, and both of them played well. Like Fritz Rublev were just better. I was. We don't talk enough. DK and I've I've done my fair share of Andre Rublev slander in the sense that I've said his destiny is to go one and two at tour finals for the rest of his prime. Oh. And by the way, like people take that as a slight. That means he's a top eight guy for the rest of his prime. He ain't gonna have to work a second job in his career. Is the point I'm trying to make, DK? That's a win in life. But like I guess again more broadly, yeah, like needed to have those wins. They had to have them. And like for Rublev to get it, we don't talk enough about how physical he is. The fact that he is as fit as any player we have on tour. And it's extraordinarily impressive. You have to do that to beat a Demon Hour and get yourself to the quarterfinals. And that is how we will transition to ranking these matches, DK. We're going to talk not only about my favorite. Or we're going to go off of my list. DK is going to tell me too high, too low, just right. And then we're going to talk what a win looks like for each of these players, but we're going to go through them quickly, I promise. Let's start Sinner Rublev. Sinner, the career head-to-head favorite. Some of these I'll know. Some of them I don't. I just recorded this pod, so I know this one. 4-2 is the career head-to-head there. Sinner 2-0 against Rublev last year. You know, Rublev again, 0-9 in quarterfinals. I think Sinner's in like his fourth or fifth, maybe even sixth. The big thing for me is Yannick Sinner has made at least the second week in five of the last six majors that we've played. Excuse me, six of the last seven majors that we've played. His only miss coming last season. I mean, again, like all the stats would point Sinner. He's the favorite. According to Tennis Abstract, you all know the records. Yannick Sinner, a 78.4% favorite. This is my number one match. It's four versus five. It has the mainstream sex appeal, but... 
it's also a massive moment for both guys, as I alluded to earlier. Like, if Rublev gets this win for the first time in his career, because you didn't after the Monte Carlo title. Like, I just I didn't care. That's first clay court event of the year. I know it's a 1,000, but it's the fluffy 1,000 in the sense that everyone's getting accustomed to switching surfaces. He beats Sinner after beating Demon Hour the way he did in round four to set up a semifinal matchup that would probably just be a Djokovic route. But even if he gets to that matchup, that is a clear-cut step forward, not just because it alleviates the 0-9 record, but it alleviates the I beat a big guy in a big spot record as well. This quarterfinal win would have more gravitas than if it was against a Fritz or if it was against like a Hatchinov or a, you know, again, Lorenzo Musetti, congrats, you're the example I'm going to use is making a run here. This would be the sort of win we just haven't seen Andre Rublev earn in his career. This is my number one match. Do you agree? Too high, too low, just right. Yeah, it's sort of narratively perfect in the sense yeah. that, you know, we still want to see Yannick Sinner do what he could do at a slam. Yes, he's made the Wimbledon semifinals, but, you know, now this is his first, you know, big shot after having the fall that he had. Can he, you know, completely cement himself as the top four guy, as a top four guy that he's shown himself capable of being, but you got to do it at a slam. And... On the other hand, he's also done just enough that if Rublev beats him, that's a huge mark in his in his column as well. So I think regardless of who wins, it'll be a pretty good one, a pretty good semifinal, pretty good narrative for either of them to take out of this tournament. I think you would one would prefer to see Sinner, just given the the way the quality of the Djokovic Sinner matches have been going, and we're kind of assuming that Djokovic is going to make the semifinal. No disrespect to Taylor Fritz, but I think that's where we're kind of all collectively leaning, but man, again, another slow and steady step in the right direction for Ante Rula would would be to finally make a Grand Slam semifinal. Yeah, I mean, again, it's going to be a fascinating matchup, and Rublev has showed off a physicality that just, he'll be ready for this fight. Like, I don't worry about the fact that he played five sets against Demon Hour the round before. I worry about the pace. Like, against Demon Hour, everything was on Andre Rublev's terms. When he wanted to go big down the line, the opportunity, for the most part, was there available to him. Now, again, Demon Hour roadrunnered his way through that match, certainly generated more pace on the backhand with frequency than I had ever seen before. But it's a different level of pace when you come against Yannick Sinner, who has yet to drop a set, who overwhelmed all things Karen Hatchinov in the round of 16 as well, and... It's just like, uh, again, got his first semifinal at a major last year at Wimbledon, has beaten Andre Rublev in their past couple of matchups, has done it on hard courts as well. I think all signs are pointing center. What does a Rublev win look like? He's got to serve well, obviously. he's He's got to find a way to disrupt Yannick Sinner's rhythm. I just don't know if he's... I just I don't know if he can do that consistently enough off of both wings to beat a guy who I think is like this is I'm picking Sinner because I think Sinner's that good and that's where the problem is like I don't know what the Rublev win looks like I know what every Andre Rublev win looks like obviously it involves his serve and his forehand I don't know if that's going to be enough against Sinner that's how good I feel about Yannick right now which way are you leaning in this match yeah, I'm leaning Sinner as well. And also shout out to Sinner for showing a little bit of personality this tournament. I very much enjoyed his on-court interview where he joked about, you know, going to the gym, even though it doesn't look like it. And I think he, we all want the Baywatch body. I was like, this is some high quality, some high quality schmoozing going on on court right now. We certainly get a lot of that from Andre Rublev on and off the court. And it's, it's nice to see Yannick kind of coming into his own fairly quickly. I mean, he's getting these results and now able to kind of settle into the role of being that guy who's doing these on-court interviews, I think is impressive and, and a testament, I think, to where he is 
mentally. He's not overly stressed out about the task in front of him. And I think that's going to help in a match against Rublev, who is historically often stressed out. It's only been four matches for Sinner so far this year. He's holding serve 96.4% of the time. He's been broken just just twice, excuse me, just twice through 12 sets of tennis. It's pretty darn good. Again, uh, Sinner, for his career, or over the last 52 weeks, excuse me, this is the big stat, 13-3 and three against top 10 opponents on hard courts. Like, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. On the flip side, obviously, you look for Andre Rublev, 2-7 and seven on hard courts in those matches. 9-11 and 11 against top 20 opponents at Grand Slams. I'm just leaning with the sin, man. Uh, it sounds like you are as well. That's number one on the list. Yes, you are. It's a twink-off. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right, let's get, to number, let's get to number two. This is where DK is going to disagree with me. I, I can just tell you right now, I don't even have to say the match that's number two. Before I he I know he's going to disagree with me. It has to be Alcaraz Zverev. It has to be Alcaraz Zverev. And should Alex Zverev be playing right now in the ATP tour, given the domestic violence allegations he faces in Germany, that trial will go to public trial. Excuse me, as it continues to be adjudicated through the German legal system. That is a separate discussion that you and I have had before on this podcast. If he is going to be allowed to play again. He is continuing to make his push back up the ATP rankings. Obviously, he's already as high as number six, but he's back into another quarterfinal here uh, at a major. And yeah, he got pushed to five sets against Cam Norrie. That was a really fun match. But DK, here's the stat for you. Carlos Alcaraz in his career against players he has faced more than once. Here's a list of guys he has a losing record to. He's 0-2 against Mikhail Emer. Throw that one out if you want. One in three against FAA, one in two against Novak Djokovic, and three and four against Sasha Zverev, who of course is his quarterfinal opponent. Zverev beating Alcaraz at the tour finals last year after Alcaraz gave Zverev the business in both their US Open Madrid Masters matches. Of course, Zverev got a win over a younger Alcaraz, not that he's particularly old now, but beat him in the Roland Garros quarterfinals in 2022. So at least we have seen what a Zverev over Alcaraz victory not only at a slam looks like, but what it looks like more recently. Again, he did beat him in that first tour finals match. And yes, it's a fresher. It's a fitter Carlos Alcaraz. And Alcaraz, who has yet to drop... No, he dropped a set against Sinego, but has really, outside of that match, failed to be tested so far at this Australian Open. It's two of the six best players in the world. Zverev has the size, the strength, the backhand to deal with the weaponry of Carlos Alcaraz. We know he's fit enough to play five sets every match if he needs to. Of course, Carlos Alcaraz is just always must-watch television, in my mind, at this point as well. Alcaraz also 65.7% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract. What say you, DK? Is this match too high? I don't know. I'm glad we're on camera because now I can do physical comedy so I can, like, lend you my glasses because it feels like maybe you need... You're having some vision issues looking at these these matches. I mean, I don't really read a ton into that World Tour Finals or ATP Finals match between Alcaraz and Zverev. I seem to recall Alcaraz being very rusty and even a little bit injured at the start of that tournament before sort of playing his way into form. I I think I read much more into the the slightly less recent wins over Zverev and, and, and beyond the existential reasons about uh, Zverev. I I just read into the fact that he's played two final set tiebreaker five set matches this tournament. And I, and I think it's one thing to rebound against 
Nori, I think it's another thing to rebound against Carlos Alcaraz. So I think you do need to be at your most physically fresh. And so I, I question that feels like a match that Alcaraz should win fairly easily. I mean, I, it was interesting to see him navigate the one against Senego. Senego, who had a winning record against Alcaraz coming into this tournament, you know, played a really entertaining match there, but has looked stronger and stronger in his subsequent two matches, you know, bageling Hicksmanovic in the fourth round. Yeah, I don't, for me, the number two would probably be a Sabalenka Krechkova, perhaps even a Coco Goff or a Kostyuk. I, I don't put this one at the number two. I think it would be a very strange match if it ends up living up to the hype that you are uh, giving it. Zverev, 6-13 against the top 10 in his last 52 weeks of play. He's won three of his last four, though. Wins over Rublev, Alcaraz, Tsitsipas, and Hercots, uh, during Excuse me, so four of his last five. Good math there, Alex. A loss to Medvedev uh, sandwiched in between. It's a prove-it match for Zverev. Like, again, if he wants to win a major, this is the guy he's going to have to go through at this point of his career. One of a couple of guys, of course, but this is one of those names you have to put on the list. And again... Yes, it was fresh off of a five-set victory over Sinner. Alcaraz beat Zverev decisively when these two faced off in the U.S. Open. I'm fascinated by the tennis because Zverev does have a serve to win some free points, hit Alcaraz off his spots. Again, his backhand, his length, his speed, well-suited for, in theory, the ball that Alcaraz will throw at him in a way that just a bunch of players really aren't on the ATP Tour. At the same time, what have we seen in the Casper, uh, in the, excuse me, uh, Lucas Klein match? What have we seen? <laughs> yeah, sorry. In the Lucas Klein match, in the Cam Nori match, guys who are willing to be aggressive are going to put pressure on Zverev, and Zverev will give them opportunities to be aggressive in the biggest moments of every match when he continues to still get a little tentative. Elkraz makes him pay for that. I think Carlos wins in four, but I think this match is better than you think it will be. Cool. <laughs> At least one of us will enjoy it. <laughs> then let's move on to matches uh, number three on my list. And again, this was in competition, certainly, for uh, that number two spot. I think Sina Rublev, the decisive one, I'll do respect. I go Sabalenka Krejcikova in my number two spot. I think they have to be there. This was arguably the be- uh, three spot. Excuse me. Thank you for the correction, which I can now see and the listeners can see on video as well. DK correcting me. We see each other. Yeah, thank you. Um <laughs> This was the best rivalry through the first third of last season. And a reminder, they played three times. Krechikova, love 6 7 6, six one win on her way to the title, I believe, in Dubai, where she beat both Sabalenka and Sviantec in the same event. Sabalenka then beats Krechikova, three sets, round of 16 of Indian Wells. And then all of a sudden, they draw each other again. Round of 16, Miami, much more decisive victory for Sabalenka. They played in Stuttgart as well. We'll throw that one out since it was on clay. Sabalenka, 5-1 and one overall when they've played in their career. 4-1 and one on hard courts. I mean, look, again, the difference is Arena, after playing that top five level of tennis to start last season, she sustained that level. Krejcikova was all over the map. That said, there have been pockets. Dubai last season. Ostrava the year before that. Even flashes down the home stretch of last season, even if it was really inconsistent at times in Asia, where Krejcikova has looked like her top five self, or she has looked like that player who captured the 2021 Roland Garros. And at least the thing she has going into this matchup that none of Sabalenka's prior opponents had, maybe some weapons to make Sabalenka at least a little bit uncomfortable. At least she can say, hey, I've beaten you, Arena. In a way, you know, again, none of the. I guess Anisimova could say that, but that was such a different version of Anisimova. You, you, would, you would say Anisimova has no weapons and no, no experience she, of beating Sabalenka. <laughs> 
this version of Anisimova, yeah, you're right. I blanked out on that match. But this version of Anisimova could strike the ball well. She's just not where she needs to be from a movement perspective, physically still working her way back, right? Like the moment Sabalenka got her stretched and the ball wasn't in front of Anisimova, those points were over. I just Sabalenka was never threatened. And I think Krejcikova has played a high enough level over the last 52 weeks. Maybe that's the better way of saying it. Or at least, I mean, again, she beat Sabalenka last year. Like Arena knows what that best level looks like in the back of her mind. At the same time, like Sabalenka's been untouchable at this event. She has dropped 11 games. 11 games through eight sets of tennis. Like, what are we doing here? The only person who's beaten her this year was Elena Rabakina, who I said earlier on this pod, might have played the best tennis we'll see all season. Here's the thing. Krejcikova, three three-set wins in her four matches. All three of those wins, she dropped the opening set. It's taken her some time to calibrate her way into matches the way she grinded down Andreva and stayed aggressive, continued to move forward, pressured the 16-year-old was a really smart game plan. She's not going to have that sort of freedom against Sabalenka. And I just don't think she's played well enough to stop this buzzsaw that is Sabalenka right now. I think the trains are on the tracks. I think Sabalenka wins in straight sets. I think this match is more enticing on paper than it will be by the level I've seen from both of them so far this year. That's why it's three. Yeah, I mean, I still think just for the dearth of top quality, you know, mano y mano women's matches that we're going to potentially get. I mean, we can obviously get Sabalenka Goff, um, but I think it's going to, we're going to not, we're going to see a lot of uneven by ranking matches. So to see a Sabalenka Krejcikova is certainly going to be interesting. I do feel like, yes, I mean, there was a time at the start of the tournament where it felt like Krejcikova was going to be the first upset victim. I think that early that Sunday evening or mm-hmm. Sunday morning, Saturday evening, she was like down a set to my hometown on the first round. You felt like, well, this is, not where Krejcikova wants to be, certainly uh, on the singles court, but you know managed to play her way somewhat into form. I think benefited a little bit from Andreeva getting frustrated and nervous in the second set of that match, having beaten her twice last year or once. I think once was a retirement. Um, certainly felt like Andreeva's match to lose, and so that's for if you're Andreeva, another rough uh, slam loss from potentially a winning position. So that's that's brutal. But I do m- what I am most interested in to see how Krejcikova raises her level against Sabalenka, perhaps in the way that you're curious to see how Zverev raises it for Alcaraz. I, I feel like Krejcikova might have more success being slightly fresher, having that win over her last year, maybe perhaps not being as mentally, you know, fried as she was, as she seemed to be for a lot of last year after that successful first three months. But I think where Sabalenka benefits is that her quality of opponent has ticked up ever so slightly with each round. You know, she had Serenko, Anisimova, and now Krejcikova feels like a very a smooth curve where she's not going to necessarily be baffled, you know, at, hmm. by this out of nowhere, you know, high quality. She did get some really good looks <laughs> against Anisimova, who really can still clock the ball and is certainly someone who brought that intensity of someone who has beaten her multiple times, beat her at this tournament before. So Sabalenka just seems like she's in a really good headspace. She seems like the team has just figured out how to keep her loose and calm and happy. This could have been a very stressful slam for her. This is her first time defending a title of this magnitude, and she has looked easy, breezy, beautiful. And I think that's such a testament to what her team has been able to accomplish. So I I do expect her to win this match. It would be sort of a brutal brutal way for it to end after how well she started the tournament. But I do I do expect some some really quality rallies and some interesting shot making from the two of them. Yeah, I'll I'm still sticking Sabalenka in straights. And again, tennis abstract, not surprising, agrees with me. Sabalenka, 73.4% favored. She's 7-0, by the way, 
in her uh, seven pre- uh, appearances in Grand Slam quarterfinals. By the way, right? she made the semifinals <laughs> or further in each of the last five majors that she's played. So, yeah, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the Sabalenka buzzsaw. Uh, nine and seven in her career against top 20 opponents at the majors. Sabalenka, uh, Krejcikova, for what it's worth, in her career at the majors, three and four against top 20 opponents. Fourth on my list is my favorite match to watch from an on-court perspective. It's not the best from a storyline perspective, but I just think head-to-head this is going to be my sort of tennis. It's golf versus Kostyuk. Like, just give me all of the athleticism in this battle. And golf, 1-0 in the career head-to-head. She's an 84.7% favorite according to Tennis Abstract. I get why. Like, she's playing in her sixth career quarterfinal at the majors. And, you know, again— the last time these two faced off, Coco Goff only had one career appearance at the majors in quarterfinals. She's had her five since, so obviously a lot's changed. Here's the big number, DK. Over the last 52 weeks, Coco Goff on hard courts, she's played 28 matches against opponents ranked outside the top 20. What's her record? Since when? I'm sorry. <laughs> over, the, over the past year. Record She's, on hard courts against opponents outside the top 20. Um, 28 matches total. Oh, God. I, I, probably like 25 and 3. Because I feel like even when she wasn't playing that great, she was still beating who she was supposed to beat. 27 and 1. The last okay. loss, it's Anastasia close. Potapova in Miami. She's won 21 I was there. straight yeah, <laughs> on hard courts since against opponents ranked outside the top 20. 13 and 1 over the last 52 weeks against opponents ranked outside the top 20 at majors as well. The one loss being Sonia Kennan. Again, the difference is this version of Marta Kostyuk. Kostyuk, who looked excellent in a 2 and 1 win over a Timofeeva, who could grind with her but couldn't hurt her in any sort of sense. The match against Mertens might have quietly been the best match we've had so far in the women's singles draw. Kostyuk, a 7-6 third set win in that match, or certainly on the short list of the best matches we've seen. She's playing lights out. Like, it's just a different Marta Kostyuk to start this season. She's holding serve. Again, it's only nine matches, but she's holding serve 70.4% of the time. That would be a career high by a significant margin. She's moving well. She's playing confidently. She just has the it back to her. There's just a focus, a, an intensity in everything she's doing right now, DK. The Svitolina match in Auckland for Coco Goff was a good match, a three-set match, the only match where she has lost any sets in her nine wins this year. I think Kostya can give her that sort of test. Like, I don't think Svitolina, obviously they're both Ukrainian, so it's a little lazy, but that's not why I'm making the comparison. I don't think it's a bad comp for the kind of the totality of things, I guess, Kostya can throw at Goff from the matching, the physicality, playing extended rallies, hurting her down the line in different ways, taking a few returns on the rise, sneaking forward at times. It's two really well-rounded players. Now, are Kostyuk's weapons in-your-face sort of weapons that can routinely pressure the Goff forehand? No. She's going to have to try and manufacture other ways to make Goff uh, uncomfortable, but... This is a damn good match. 221 and under talents who are going to be a part of our lives for the next decade going head-to-head at the majors for the first time. Don't you wish Marta and Coco had, like, a podcast? I just feel like they would have, like, this, like, two of the most opinionated, and and I say that in a very positive way, like, young women on tour who can, like, really explain themselves. When when Kostyuk gave the answer that went viral on Twitter, because it's biggest storylines, results, and controversies. I haven't talked about this yet. I'm glad you're here to do so. 
That was a phenomenal answer when she kind of said, you look at Raducanu's draw versus Leila Fernandez's draw and getting to that 2021 U.S. Open, how different it was as a point to, in her way of saying draws just differ from event to event. It's going to differ for everyone. That's an excellent example to pull out of the back of your brain. Like, Leila Fernandez pulling out that Sabalenka match is burned in my memory, but that might have been like her third most dramatic match. I'm confused as to why there was even any controversy yeah. as a result of that. I mean, granted, we probably don't hear a lot of players speaking that frankly about other people's draws in the past. But even in the context of her answer, I thought it was a very thoughtful response in the sense of like, look, sometimes just things happen. Things yeah. happen certain ways and the results happen that you can't quite explain. This happens that, you know, all depends on the day. You know, it just which is a very accurate way of describing tennis. And I mean, I, I, I've cackled when she was like, I mean, Layla was fighting for her life every match. And I mean, it was like, the, if we go back to that 2021 US Open, the one thing we could all agree on was that Layla was beating a numerous title favorites all in a row. And Emma's draw, granted, she did have to play through more matches through qualifying, was not of the same magnitude. She certainly didn't play anyone who could challenge her the well, way that... I, I, I would always say if you flip those draws, I don't think Emma makes it to the final. And I think Layla might. Well, what I would say just quickly on that note is I'll never forget going into the fourth round and being like, okay, but now she's playing Benchich. So this is where Radakanu's run ends. And like Benchich was playing really well leading up through that summer. And it didn't end. Spoiler alert. Um, and so Benchich yeah, I think won I, the gold medal that summer. She had. Yeah, I think yeah. she was on a streak. I think she was on yeah. a winning streak from that Olympics. And I, and I think – what Marta could further have said, which um, Dinara Safina told me when I spoke to her last week, was that, you know, mm. when you play, when you're playing that first year on tour, you are never more free and easy. And the players that are on tour don't know who you are. And you could just be fearless and embrace that because that is a feeling you will never get again. Because eventually you're going to want, you're going to feel, you know, the pressure to defend points. Your opponents are going to become more familiar with you. They're going to know how to beat you. You know, it's in, in the context of, Look, things happen for all the myriad and sundry reasons. It was just a perfect storm for Emma Raducanu, who, look, in many ways, is probably set for life. So, I mean, I don't think Marta Kostiuk's a quote, you know, has has Emma's bills affected. So I, I wouldn't worry about that. So then let me ask you to worry about this. What does a Marta Kostiuk win look like? Because I think we all know what a golf win looks like, right? There's the totality of her experience, her physicality, that she does have the bigger weapons, her serve, the heaviness the of her toughness. forehand when she has time, the backhand, her, I think she's probably a better volley. She's a little better at everything. Um, what does a Kostiuk win look like? Well, I mean, listen, it's been it's been quite a revelation or just fascinating to watch Coco this tournament just because I feel like who is this girl? <laughs> you know, just like hit stronger, more confident, hitting the forehand with authority. It's like this is not the player that we saw this time last year. So it's just been fascinating and and heartening. It should be heartening to everyone on tour. Be like, listen, if you put the work in, you too can make vast improvements in your game in a very short period of time. So do not be afraid to do that. For Kostyuk, I think the big issue is going to be can she be mentally strong through the whole match? I mean, she's been very close to a lot of big wins over the last 12 months and sometimes freezes at the finish line. You know, so I think the big difference in this match is the fact that Coco is so much more mentally tough. And I think that will ultimately carry her through. But I do think Kostuk's variety, the fact that she's not going to give Goff a lot of pace to absorb and redirect could potentially give her some trouble. But I think at the end of the day, Goff is just so confident, has not won, has not lost a match in quite a long time at this point, and I think just has that essential experience is going to take her into the into the semis. I ask him to describe what a Kostyuk win looks like, and we get a Goff 
victory out of the mouth of DK, folks. Welcome. I to... said I said variety no, I and mental toughness, but we're no, not. It's, that just... seems unlikely. No, I'm just <laughs> messing with you. Um, I think Kostyuk's a tennis chameleon, and what I mean by that is I think she's as good as the player on the other side of the net of her. I think Coco Goff is going to bring out her best. <laughs> I don't know if she gets through this one. I'm going to take Goff. I do. Th- you know what? I'm going to take Kostyuk to take off. Uh, take the first set off of Coco Goff in Melbourne. But I don't think this match is ever in doubt. I think Kostya takes a really tightly contested first set. Goff wins the next two, like three and two from there. Give me Coco Goff to advance to the semifinals. All right, we've talked a lot. I, I got to oh, go ask ahead. one follow-up question. Please. Which which semifinal would you be more intrigued by? Sabalenka Goff or Sabalenka Kostyuk? For well, all the look, reasons I was that would be intriguing earlier. about the Sabalenka Kostyuk If match. I would have given you odds, and I don't gamble anymore, but if I were to have given you odds in another universe where I say, hey, there will be two Ukrainians and one Russian in the quarterfinals, and by the way, neither of those Ukrainians are going to be Alina Svitolina, you would have been like, name the price. Like, I, I'm going to rob money off you here. You're and like, name them. Have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it's fine. Just guarantee me 20 bucks and I will bet a thousand bucks because I'm going to win that 20 bucks off you. And that was not the case, obviously, with these other players emerging. And we've talked about a lot of them thus far. So these next three, we can go through a little bit more quickly. I gave you all the Hercot stats already. Um, he's taken on Daniil Medvedev. I'll get the career head-to-head for them in a moment when I set the premise for you. But again, Hoopy Hercot's 30 and 11. He's serving like Isner. He does have the game suited to pressure Daniil Medvedev's court positioning and be the aggressor and take some cuts the way you have to do if you want to get through the wall that is Daniil Medvedev. That said, Medvedev steadied the ship and slowly progressed and gotten better through his first four matches of this season, which I always think is a data point worth noting. You have any faith in Hubi? Tennis abstract, not really. Medvedev, 72.8% uh, favorite. What say you on this match? This is, which, by the way, number five on my list. I mean, we will see how these quarterfinals play out, but kind of feels like a Medvedev tournament. It just feels like mm. old marvelous Mr. Medvedev is just in a really good headspace and is, you know, chopping it up on Rod Laver Arena. And, you know, yeah, he got frustrated when he lost that third set to Borges, but, you know, clamped right down and won that fourth set 6-1. And, you know, beat Alcaraz at the U.S. Open, you know, last year. It's, I don't know. I feel I feel kind of confident in him right now. Maybe I shouldn't because, you know, this is Djokovic at the Australian Open and Alcaraz is who he is. And certainly we know what Sinner's capable of. But I, I don't know. I, I feel pretty confident in him. And I, the stats back me up for this match. And I'm I'm curious to see how this this back half of the tournament goes for him. Haven't played since 2022. Hercot's 3-2 and two in the career head-to-head. Again, he does have the game style to exploit just the amount of space Medvedev offers you. If you're willing to be bold, willing to be the aggressor, willing to move forward, Medvedev will offer you pathways to get there. Now, you got to be precise in your targets from there because if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. But Hercots is willing, and he's as good moving forward as any player we have in the men's game right now. <sighs> Medvedev in a very tightly contested two-tie break, four-set match. But I think this one's going to be really good. Like, I just think Hubi... He made the quarterfinal hurdle. I think it's his second or third quarterfinal of his career. And I think this is him saying, no, I'm a top 10 guy. Like enough with maybe I'm going to be a little less than that on clay because that's not my thing. But when we get back to the grass courts, when we get back to the hard courts, I'm now a part of the story always. And I just think he's gotten to that point. Obviously, he stepped, kept the same coach now for about a half decade. Like I just think we're like, maybe I was wrong. The two guys I'm most afraid about being wrong about – 
I know Casper lost ultimately uh, in this event to Cam Norrie, but I think Casper's going to have a really good bounce back 2024. I think Hercots is going to sustain his level, and I don't think I expected that. I thought his spot might be one up for grabs in the top 10, but I've really liked what I've seen from him this month. I think Medvedev wins in a tight four, but I'm not as certain as you are. I don't know if I'm... I mean, I do feel like I, I could see a fourth set tiebreaker breaking his way, but I sure. I don't know. I just think the the momentum, the way that Medvedev is handling himself this tournament compared to the draw that Hercats had to make the quarterfinals, like it's not like he's, you know, been de- destroying, you know, either destroying everybody or making through some really like, oh, wow, he beat this person and that person. Like, you know, the draw did open up for him. And so I think that that's something to consider. But um, yeah, it's I certainly been a, an interesting matchup those two players but I, I do i do like this as a potential springboard for for medvedev heading into the semis so what's my biggest crime sinarublov one alcaraz virov two sabalenka krechikova three golf kostyuk four medvedev Hercats five what's the most disagreeable take of my top five matches thus far is it alcaraz virov you'd move them yeah, down I think it's i think it's alcaraz virov I, w- I would put sabalenka and golf i think over alcaraz mm-hmm. virov i mean like i said if things go I think Alcaraz is not going to be playing very well if it becomes a very competitive match. And I think if Alcaraz plays his best, he really should win that one fairly easily. Fair enough. Sixth on my list, Noskova Yastremska. I know this is lower than you'd expect Linda Noskova to be on a list of mine, but 19-year-olds are Not number one. (laughs) No, the 19-year-olds are already shown me everything I need to see from her this event. And again, to have a resurgent Yastremska as well, to have this display of power tennis, obviously, this is going to be on at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club over the course of the weekend. I mean, again, you wonder, does Noskova have any juice left in the tank? But, like, I mean, again, she got a withdrawal, right, from her, like, the, the perfect gift maybe she could have been offered after a couple of physical week one matches, not to describe an injury as a gift, but obviously in the Noskova sense, the recovery that will be there. I mean, was it pretty the prettiest tennis? Not always between Yastremska and Azarenka, but Yastremska did to Azarenka what she's done to every player she's faced, which is make the match on her terms. It's going to get choppy, but when Yastremska's ripping winners, you're just losing. <sighs> it's a good match. It's a lot of power tennis. That's why it's lower on the list. Is I'm not sure how aesthetically fun this one's going to be. The way you know, again, Hercats, Medvedev, contrast of styles. Kostyuk, Goff, the physicality. I think that speaks for themselves. This tennis might be a little choppier. Just give me a pick. Which way are you leaning and why? I, mean, I think the way Yastremska handled herself in that Azarenka match is definitely a point in her favor because she even mentioned it on the on-court interview that, you know, that she likes to go for winners, but she also doesn't like to make mistakes. And that might be an interesting look into the psyche of Diana Yastremska. Maybe that's why some of these losses have piled up for over the years, you know, just getting too frustrated when she's not playing perfect tennis. And obviously the way that she's, her intent is on the court, you're not going to be playing perfect tennis. I would say most of the time, you're going to have to hit through some errors. And the fact that she was able to win against, you know, a, a confident and inform, a fit, you know, an experienced Azarenka who kept coming back and did not have a, a meaningful dip in that match. I mean, when Azarenka goes up 3-0 in the second, I think old Yastremska loses that set 6-0, 6-1, and perhaps loses the third set. But even if she comes back, she's wasted energy losing that second set. So the fact that she was able to navigate that one and get another big wind under her belt, 
I think as someone who also feeds off of confidence, I think she's someone who very much enjoys the spotlight and got a lot of that uh, yesterday uh, on Rod Laver Arena. I do think that's going to help her, you know, versus Anoskova, who is, I still think, you know, still very new and green to all this, but I think also has superior technique. So I think there's those two things to balance. But um, I think certainly before the tournament, I would have said in a hypothetical matchup between Noskova Yastremska, I would pick Noskova probably every time. But given the way that this tournament has shaken out, um, I, I do wonder if some of the mojo is gone from Noskova mm. having peaked against Shantek, then, you know, not being able to really play through that match against Fidelina and now being against someone who is, you know, a <laughs> I don't want to say a circus, but like someone who's just like, you know, a whole she's a she's a performance. She's a showman. So I think I think that's going to be an interesting one because, you know, Iga's not a showman, you know, for better or for worse. She's someone who she's a hard worker and someone who gets the job done. I think someone who is going to be a bit more theatrical, you know, in a big match, maybe it's a different look for Noskov. I'll say that. I like that you say performance with a French accent and it does just sound (laughs) magnifique. Um, Yeah. I look again. I, I'm more certain about Naskova's level. I think Yastrzemska's highest level is just like it's a reminder that she just clubs the ball. The athleticism, the firepower, the boldness. She'll just make you uncomfortable. I'm going to pick Naskova just so we're on different ends of one of these matches. But I mean, you have to pick Naskova. Yeah, sort of exactly. Like... I'm principal. But um, <laughs> yeah, look, I think that's going to be a display. Hold that against tennis. you. Two players still, by the way, 23 and under. So the best tennis still ahead. These last two, we can just go straight picks. Djokovic, Fritz, how many sets? Thoughts? I mean, I'm going to say three. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to say three sets for Djokovic, for Fritz. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> for, for Djokovic. I mean, I think this, is, this has been a very classic Novak Australian Open. Comes in maybe a little bit undercooked, a little bit injured, you know, plays his way into form, starts feeling confident, you know, embraces the challenges. And, you know, this is kind of like a perfect quarterfinal opponent for him, someone he's very comfortable against, someone who, you know, he knows he can, you know, outplay, you know, technically, mentally. And so I think this is a, a very good warm up for which should be and could be a very, um, fascinating semifinal against the Yannick Center. So I think that's, for him, I think this is an ideal way to walk into that one. So, I mean, this is a big opportunity for for Fritz, perhaps. Certainly not a player right now who has a ton of expectation or pressure. You would hope that he rises to the occasion, maybe takes a set, maybe takes two sets, but I, I don't necessarily see that happening. Djokovic's last loss to a player not named Rafa in a major quarterfinal, 2018 Roland Garros to Marco Cecinato. It's been a while. Now, the big case for Fritz... Nine and nine against top ten opponents on hard court since the start of 2022. Like this is the neighborhood he's knocked in, but Djokovic is the biggest house on the neighborhood. And I just think again, Novak can do too many things to make Taylor uncomfortable. Again, eight no in the career head to head. Give me Novak in straights. We spend all of our time talking about Chin Wen, and I'm banking on the fact that we might have a big topic to discuss with her when I have you back on this show next week to recap it all. By the way, book your calendar now, please, DK. Um, Thoughts? Her, Kalinskaya. By the way, uh, Kalin, uh, Chinwen, a 72.2% favorite. Just to offer you these final tennis abstract numbers, Novak Djokovic, 86.1% favorite. Both of those sound about right to me. I don't know. I'm a little annoyed you didn't make that the number one match. I felt like you were going to just do that to irritate me. But I no, think I now that I didn't get it, and now that I didn't get it, I kind of miss it. I feel like I, I feel a little <laughs> bit like a, a little Stockholm syndrome. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think... Some some of us in our group chat were not feeling very confident in Jung Chin Wen, and 
I did kind of feel like she was going to beat Dodan. Certainly would have been funny if Dodan made the final, made the, made the semis. Cause I, I like that crazy tennis and I yeah. like her. I think she's, she's, she's a hoot, but um, I think this is, this is Chin Wen's moment in many respects. Yeah. You know, I think this is the culmination of all of the energy. I mean, Lee Nas here for God's sake. I mean, like, I feel like it's, there's a lot of good energy behind Chin Wen that it just feels like this is her moment. This I don't think she's going to give Kalinskaya as many looks, certainly as a Paulini did, certainly as a Sloan did. I think, you know, Chin Wen is going to try to take the ball out of Kalinskaya's hand. And I can't imagine Kalinskaya having that much juice left in the tank. This has been a pretty big, a huge, you know, potentially career-changing um, moment for her. I mean, it's no Midland, but I mean, this is a, like probably the second best, you know, accomplishment of her career in that respect. So I, I, I do, I think this is a big moment for Chin Wen to really like cement herself now as the oncoming challenger to the current top echelon of the game. Kalinskaya is good at everything. Chin Wen has the opportunity to be great at everything. When the ball is coming off of her racket, as dynamic as it does, I just think she overwhelms Kalinskaya. So I'll take her to advance. That's your look and thoughts on everything we've seen through the round of 16 at this event. Now, DK, I do have one bonus topic before you go that, again, maybe we'll reflect with greater detail upon when looking back at these two weeks. But... It was a moment. It was something that as it was happening, my first thought was, God, I can't wait to have David on the show to discuss it. DK, I'm throwing it at you spontaneously before you go. Rank these three 16-year-olds by upside. <laughs> Andriva, Brenda Fruvertova, Alina Kornieva. Now, you don't want to be mean to 16-year-olds. No, no. Here's what I want to do. I don't want you to give me an explanation yet. We're going to go through the full explanation on the full recap show. This will okay. be a tease for that show. That's how we'll do it here. Give me your rankings. We'll get into the why next time when you can think about it. I mean, Andreeva is definitely number one. That feels boring fair. take. Boring I, take. I, I and know, the wrong I mean, look, take. Look at the competition, man. I mean, that's, I that's brutal. I mean, like, Kornieva, I'm not Im super impressed by the technique. Oh, I mean, I like to watch it, but I don't find it to be very effective. I mean, watching even when she was playing oh. juniors, I'm like, oh, she's not making this out of juniors. This isn't happening. So, I mean, like, good for her for already making it to the main draw of a slam and winning a match. But um, and then but then it's like, what do you, you pick your poison? You pick the Kornieva technique or you pick like the Vervatova, like Patrick Mortoglu technique, which I'm very suspicious of. So, oh, God, I, I guess I'm going to put Kornieva second. Then I'll put Vervatova third because I just I. I can't endorse that technique. I just find um, it to be very un unreliable. I think my hottest take, even after this Australian Open, is I think I might have Andreeva third on upside. And, like, that is my hottest take Whatever, coming man. out of this. <laughs> because the 20 minutes I saw from Brenda Fruvertova against Coco Goff in Auckland, that's the best 20 minutes anyone has played against Goff this season. Like, go watch the first 20 minutes, 30 minutes of that match, where you watch this 16-year-old just swing freely. I did and, watch that match, and I do not remember this. Uh, so I, <laughs> I guess I have to watch it again. 20, 30 minutes of that match. <laughs> Watching Kornieva problem solve against Cerebez Tormo, I was just like, I don't care that your technique's a little weird. I like everything you're doing. I just like the comp the fight, the the way you lean forward and looking to move forward and being the aggressor. And yeah, like it's a little alley risk ish, risk -ish on the forehand, but like you just know it when you see it. And then again, Andrew is probably the best athlete of them all. And like her serve is the easiest. It's a little bit, you've seen it before in a way. Maybe you haven't with Fruvertova or Kornieva, although I don't know, man. I really like the Fruvertova technique. The, uh, They're the all really game, good, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, they the mental game on Andreeva. That makes me nervous. I mean, again, like the Coco Golf, 
the keys match at Wimbledon. Now this one against Krejcikova, you feel like, oh boy, like this is starting. I mean, I, I feel like she kind of had us coming into this this match where she was like, La- yeah, last but- year I was 15 and now I am 16. And I was like, all right, yeah, but got like, me. Okay, but look at the jump Coco Golf has made to age 19 where it's like- That is true. A- Andrew has got three years to get there. That is true. I mean, Coco, I mean, yeah. granted Coco Golf is like a clue. Even before she improved herself on the court, I always felt that she was- exceedingly special. I do think there is a specialness about Andreeva as well, but I sure. think Coco was just like, I think everyone, no matter what they thought about her as a tennis player, felt that, you know, the sky was the limit for Coco just in general. So I think that that lent itself ultimately to her making some radical changes. But I, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird, it's an interesting trio. I don't want to say weird. It's an interesting trio because they, yeah, it's, you don't quite know what's good. What you're I want you to know, I'm probably going to ask you about it every time you come on the show is we'll do an updated 16 year old power rankings. We were doing that a while for a while with like Alcaraz. Yeah. Felix, like Jerry Shang, who's back third by guy. the way, Jerry <laughs> Shang back. Yeah. The lefty from China. With not that earring. Me. Yeah. Come <laughs> on. Fun. Um, anyways, all that said, we got three more rounds to go. Plenty more coverage here at Cracked Rackets. Plenty of coverage available at tennis.com as well. Three more Where rounds, eight days. editor David Kane continues to steer a fantastic ship. DK, before I let you go, favorite piece you've written so far? What can we expect moving forward? I mean, I loved my little piece with Dinar Safina. I have yeah. another one coming at did. some point. I've been working on it, kind of. I've just It's been such an exhausting tournament. It feels like a lot of energy to like – I've been doing a lot of reactive content the last couple of days and doing a lot of instant reports. You know, that match point – I got your recap for you, but it's just, it's, I got, I have something on my heart that I got to get up at some point in this tournament. I feels like what, I have another week and a half to do it for how long this tournament's going. But um, yeah, look for, looking forward to publishing that. I published that Vesnina interview the week before the Australian Open. That doesn't count. But anytime I get to talk to Elena is always phenomenal. <laughs> Even though I, I gaslit poor Ben Rothenberg into thinking that she was coming back for Australia. She was not, but she wanted to have the full interview now. Yeah. So I was like, here we go. <laughs> I love it. And again, it's what you guys are doing day in, day out. It's essential for coverage in the tennis world. So make sure you're reading tennis.com. Make sure you follow him, DKTNS, on Twitter. A shout out to you, McGrogagon, uh, the entire team, whom I always appreciate the work you guys do. Of course, I also appreciate the work of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who makes not just this podcast available, but the Great Shot podcast, Cracked Interviews podcast, the Breakpoint show, and of course, our Cracked Records YouTube channel, where you can watch this episode, watch our college tennis broadcasts, follow along with Kickoff Week. Again, not just on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel, but we're on ESPN Plus. Same platform as the Australian Open. I didn't want to call DK out before the podcast began. I'm going to do it publicly. Did he click on any of our links this weekend? No, he did not this past weekend. Do I think I can get him to click on it maybe once accidentally over the course of the upcoming weekend? I think I'll be able to because we'll be going late into the night right as those Australian Open matches, I think, begin. And so, DK, this is the weekend. You're going to watch a college tennis podca- uh, broadcast on ESPN. You, you've got the rest of the month with your subscription, so you might as well make the most of it. I don't know. I feel like I got a lot of college tennis from Nuno Borges. I don't know if I need any more. But <laughs> Who's the next you know. Nuno? Don't you want to look for them? They're all going to be in action this weekend. Nuno's, man. Nuno's. I don't yeah, even know. All right, we'll leave that there. <laughs> well, then, a thank you to you, as always. A thank you to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has what sort of a job to do, DK? Just a f-ing editing job, and I would love to like a third. Like now that we're on camera, I would like a third just camera on him at any given point. I want to see like the eye rolling to any of some of your yeah. puns, some of my puns, let the me, blushes. Let me just you know, say, when I hit on him. I think he listens to an episode from start to finish anymore. You are sadly mistaken. Stream. He's not just off camera. Good. I assumed he was like no, nearby. He trusts me uh, on my own now. I can, chap- I can chaperone myself just enough to record on my own, and then let him do the heavy lifting from there. But a thank you to him as always, and a thank you to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, 
that'll do it for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's, yeah, I can do some physical comedy now. That's <laughs> the break. We'll see you all next time. Thank you as always, DK. Das Vidania. Thank <laughs> you.